Our Father, we're thankful again for the gift of salvation. We did not earn it. We do not deserve it. And yet in your grace, you saw to it that the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ was finished and that he paid it all. And we're thankful that the Holy Spirit, who empowered the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity during his earthly ministry, has seen fit to come and to indwell us in the church age. And he has, as he has written the scriptures, so also he teaches the scriptures and illuminates its meaning to our hearts. And we ask for that ministry tonight in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, tonight we're going to move on uh, from the uh, life of Christ over now to the notes that we left off with last, uh, last spring. Finally, we're getting there. And um, just so we can kind of get the big picture, um, we've looked at the life of Christ here. And last week, we went over... Uh, particularly in the life of Christ, the kenos, doctrines of kenosis and impeccability. And we want to recall uh, some of the, what those doctrines say and what the implications of them are for us as believers. The first one, kenosis, is the Greek word to humble, to be humbled. It comes from Philippians 2, 5 through 8. And the meaning of kenosis is that the Lord Jesus Christ did what? He gave up the voluntary use of his divine attributes. In other words, before he would exercise any of his divine attributes while on earth, he would have to ask the Father's permission to do that. So there's a subordination within the Trinity from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it was revealed during the earthly ministry of Jesus through kenosis, through the doctrine of kenosis. And you, you want to remember that the word kenosis has had in some chapters of church history a bad connotation. Uh, sometimes we hesitate to use the word because liberals have argued that kenosis means something else. Uh, they have argued that kenosis means Jesus Christ wasn't fully God. And that's not what we're saying. We're saying he's like a lamp with a lampshade on. And before he could take the lampshade off so he could see the glory of the bulb, he would have to have the Father's permission to do that. He also could not do that uh, in his trials with Satan. Jesus Christ had to meet the trials of Satan as a man with only the assets of his humanity as that humanity was empowered by the Holy Spirit. So in effect, Jesus becomes the tester of the Christian way of life. He, as it were, put the Christian modus operandi, filling of the Holy Spirit, he put it under severe combat conditions, he put it under pressure far exceeding any pressure that we would ever encounter. So in that sense, you can look upon Jesus as a test pilot or a, a tester, an engineer who tests the endurance of, of products. 
So the kenosis doctrine then spells out the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the role of Adam perfectly. And we said there are four applications of kenosis. Said number one, it shows the basic virtue in Christianity, which is not love, it is not power, it is not courage. Those may be there, but those aren't the basic. The basic virtue in Christianity is humility before God, a respect for Him. And uh, the second application we said is that the subordination of the Son to the Father proves that subordination of role does not imply inferiority of essence. And let me run that by again. Subordination of role does not imply inferiority of essence. When you look at that statement carefully, you realize that the only way you can counter it is to deny the Trinity. Subordination of role does not imply inferiority of essence. If it did, then Jesus wasn't God. And this has important ramifications because the Trinity now becomes the archetype, the source, the origin, the pattern of all authority, whether it's authority of roles in the home, whether it's authority of roles in the state. Just because, with all due respect to the feminists, just because God has invested the man as the head of the home and not the woman, does not mean that the woman is inferior in value, scope, or any way else to the man. Because if she is, then the Trinity's upset again. So, whether in, in, the, in the civil environment, we obey leaders. Does that mean that uh, the president is worth more in his humanity than any of you are? No. It means that under God, you have a role and he has a role. And that's the way it is. And we live out the implications of that. So, that's the second application of the doctrine of kenosis. The third one is that kenosis is the basis of Christ's Melchizedekian priesthood. That's Hebrews 4:14. Therefore, we have not a high priest who cannot be affected with the feelings of our infirmities touched in that way. Jesus Christ qualifies as our priest, as our representative before God to plead our case with the Father because he has personally walked the path we are walking. Now, if you think in terms of Christianity's contrast with Islam, Allah never walked our path. He is so utterly transcendent, so utterly other, that an incarnation of Allah would be inconceivable. And this is why, therefore, Allah can't really be personal to human beings. Fourth point, fourth application of kenosis is that it is the basis of Christ's judgeship. 
John 5.22, all judgment has been committed to the hands of the Son. Why? For the same reason we have trial in courtrooms by peers, jury, peers, lawyers try to get the jury arranged, or it used to be that way, so that the jury is, uh, is peer, it's, it's equal in rank, stature, experience to the person being accused. Okay, so these are important implications. We are, will be judged by a peer, in that sense. Then we said the second doctrine we reviewed was this doctrine of impeccability. And that had the two sentences that we were talking about. Jesus was able not to sin, and he was not able to sin. He was able not to sin refers to his humanity, and he is not able to sin refers to his deity. But since his deity and his humanity are united in one person, that means that the Lord Jesus Christ could not sin but was tempted. Now, how you put all those together is like putting together sovereignty and free will. Um, by the way, that's another one. Jesus Christ and his humanity had free will, human responsibility. Jesus Christ as God was sovereign. How did the two get together in one person? The fact that they got together in one person shows you they're rationally coherent. It shows you they're not schizophrenic qualities that can't settle down and be at peace one with another. All right, so that's kenosis and impeccability. And by the way, some applications of impeccability. Uh, I just gave you one. It shows you how sovereignty and human responsibility can be united in one person. Uh, in this area, area of evil and, and so on. It also shows you that you can have genuine human choice without sinning. You know, you hear the expression, to err is human. That's not true. That does not apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was genuine human, so he is the one exception that disproves that rule. Okay, and finally, a third application of impeccability is that his fixed nature is communicated to us through regeneration. And tonight, we're going to spend some time uh, dealing with that. We're going to move into 1 John, because I want to show you some things about the text in 1 John. So we'll get into some questions of exegesis more than we usually do tonight. But before we get there... I want to put into perspective uh, what happened, of course, after the Lord Jesus died, after he rose from the dead. We are back to the problem of Jesus Christ dies on the cross, he ascends, he sits down at the Father's right hand, and then he's going to come back again. The career of Jesus has been interrupted. So now between the first and second advents, there's something we call the inter-advent history. Now that inter-advent history was not clear in the Old Testament because the pictures of prophecies of the Messiah included a suffering Messiah, Isaiah 53, and it included a glorious Messiah, the mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So you have these two pictures of the Messiah. You also had in Old Testament prophecy that the Holy Spirit will be poured out. And you remember in Acts 2, 
the Holy Spirit comes down from the throne of God. And if you'll turn to Acts 2 a moment, we want to notice Peter's uh, commentary on that event. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 32, Peter concludes his address to the people who were amazed when they heard people speaking in other languages. This is not gobbledygook stuff. These people aren't going like this. And they're not trying to uh, laugh and fall over with holy laughter or whatever the latest fad is in those kinds of circles. This is a genuine speaking known human languages. Which shows you, by the way, this phenomenon doesn't continue throughout the church age. If it did, Wycliffe would not be needed. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 32, this Jesus Christ, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Notice history. What do we keep emphasizing over the last five or six years in this series? History and doctrine. History and doctrine. History and doctrine. History and doctrine. You can't separate one from the other. You try to separate and throw away the history, your doctrine becomes an illusion, becomes just a sweet story. If you try to throw away the doctrine and you just keep your history, now you've got marbles. Not going anywhere. So you keep the two together. God raised him up again, a miraculous event, whereof we are all witnesses. We saw it with our eyes. It was bonafide. We could have videotaped it had they had videotapes then. Now, verse 33 tells what happened after the resurrection. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Notice Jesus is pouring the Spirit out, not just the Father. And if you remember when we dealt with that, we dealt with the uh, Philoque Clause down in church history. Remember in the, in the Great Creed it says, uh, who proceedeth, the Holy Spirit, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. See, it's both the Father and the Son. So, the Father and the Son here send the Holy Spirit. So here's the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes down on Pentecost, and He does some miracles. And Peter quotes Old Testament prophecy that spoke of the coming of the Spirit prior to the kingdom over here. Now, some people, amillennialists, say that because Peter quoted a verse that actually refers to the precursors of the coming of the kingdom, that the kingdom must have been coming then in Acts 2. And so, what did we say? We said last time, last spring, that in Acts 2 and Acts 3, the kingdom was imminent. Because at that point, Israel was given a second chance nationally to respond to the message of Jesus. Jesus himself told it. In Luke 22, you remember, there's the parable of the king sent messengers twice. And it was the second set of messengers that were killed, not the first set. And so, that's a prophecy of the fact the first set was Jesus and the immediate apostles. The second set 
where the apostles after Jesus rose from the dead, doing the same thing as Peter was doing in Acts 2 and 3, offering the kingdom to the nation. But the nation said no. And this is why in Acts 1, if you turn back over to Acts chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus very carefully separated the coming of the kingdom from the coming of the Spirit. Notice what he says. Verse 6, the question was, are you going to restore the kingdom? The question isn't here the Spirit. The question here is the kingdom. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But when you, re you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So notice in verse 7, he says, it's not for you to know the times and the epochs of the coming of the kingdom. But in 8, he introduces that you will, apparently shortly, receive the Spirit. So this is the first inkling you have in the book of Acts that there's a split between the Holy Spirit coming and the kingdom coming. Now that split is analogous to the career of Christ. Just as Jesus has the first, second, the first advent and the second advent, so now we're introduced, actually there's two advents of the Spirit. There's the advent at Pentecost, and then there's going to be another advent when the Spirit comes to establish the kingdom on earth. So you have that, that dualism, so to speak, uh, both the Son and the Spirit. Then we had, of course, Pentecost, little mini Pentecost in Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19, just to show that this Pentecost thing was very important to include all peoples. So you have the Pentecost, capital P, then you have a little one in chapter 8, a little one in chapter 19, and another uh, 10, and another one in chapter 19. Anybody remember what groups of people were involved? Who was the new group of people introduced to the church in Acts chapter 8? Samaritans. So, up to this point, the church is 100% Jewish, now in Acts 8, we add Jews and Samaritans. And the significance of non-Jews entering the church as bona fide on an equal basis with the Jews had to be emphasized. Otherwise, the, church, the, the Jews didn't have a church consciousness, and so they'd say, well, you know, they're, they're here and we're here. But when they came in, the Holy Spirit indwelt them just like he indwelt the Jews. So in Acts 8, it's a signal event to signal to the church that the church is going to be all races, all nations, all linguistic groups. Then in Acts 10, what other group is now added to the church besides the Jews and the Samaritans? Cornelius, Gentiles. So now we have J plus S plus G. And the, when the Gentiles first come in, the signal is sounded again. There is a second mini-Pentecost to alert the church that the Gentiles are going to be indwelt just like the Samaritans and just like the Jews. Then along comes Acts 19, and what group is integrated then in the church? Those are the disciples of John the Baptist. Uh, would be equivalent to Old Testament saints wherever they may be. So you have Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, plus Old Testament believers in the diaspora all, all through the rest of the world. So 
So every major group now is represented. Every major group experienced Pentecost. So the unity of the church now begins to solidify. So we go through the book of Acts, and the diagram of Acts, the way you want to think about it, is, I believe, on page 40 of your notes. This is a, a rough diagram of the book of Acts. The theme of Acts changes as you go through the book. And at the beginning, Acts is all talking about Israel. Israel this, Israel that. Talking about Jerusalem. Talking about issues that are very Jewish. By the way, to show that, <coughs> on the left side of this graph, you might write a little, little insertion. Where were the first Christians in Acts 2 and 3 worshipping? It was in Jerusalem. Where'd they go every day? Temple. Nobody told them not to go to the temple. They were still part of the Jewish cultists, that is, the Jewish religious center. They had not separated from Judaism. There was no schism in Acts 2, socially speaking. The church was one with Judaism. Later, after you get these events in 8, 10, and 19, and you begin to get non-Jews, now you've got a problem. And that's going to be our next chapter in this notes, is how the church becomes separate from the Israel. The church and Israel become separate because as non-Jews are integrated into the church, the rest of the Jews are standing here, wait a minute, this is no longer a Jewish community. It's made up of Jews, Samaritans. We don't want Samaritans. We don't want Gentiles. They're unclean people. So the church then begins to become its own. It begins to take on a new identity. So that's why Acts is a book in transition and the conclusion of figure two is that that's why you can't build doctrine from the book of Acts. As certain elements in our church history have done, they tried to take either Acts 8, Acts 10, or Acts 2 as normative examples of how whether the Holy Spirit comes after salvation or at salvation. People who say, oh, you need a baptism of the Spirit experience after you're saved. It doesn't come with salvation. Got to add on. And they will go to uh, some of these passages in Acts. Wrong. You can't normalize transitions. Transitions, by definition, are not normalized events. The book of Acts is transitory. So you can't build doctrine from Acts. You can build a lot of examples from Acts. You can build doctrine in the sense of God's sovereignty over history. Okay, now we come to what the Holy Spirit does. So we've talked about two events uh, in this series. We've talked about the ascension and session of Jesus Christ. And we've brought in Pentecost. Now, in, we're looking at Pentecost, and we're going to do with Pentecost, like we've done with all the other events, we're going to link some doctrines to it. And one of the doctrines which we went uh, last spring was the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Who He was, the fact that the Holy Spirit is not an it, the Holy Spirit is a person. And He is a person as much as the Son and the Father. He's not a, a cloud, He's not spooky, He is 
as much God as the other two personalities of the Trinity. Now, the Holy Spirit does things. And if you can remember this, it's the easy memory mnemonic device. That's the doctrines we're going to look at. R-I-B-S, ribs. And the doctrines are regeneration, indwelling, baptizing, and sealing. There's two more we'll add later, but for now, don't overload the circuits. Ribs, regeneration, indwelling, baptizing, and sealing. Okay, you'll see these in the New Testament over and over. We started this one, the R, regeneration. And regeneration is what? Well, we covered this in, uh, if you look on page... um, 46, that's where we we dealt with it, and that's where we linked it to the life of Christ. Regeneration is the creation of Christ's life in the believer. It's the bestowing of eternal life. What is the basic image? I'd like to give you a picture of each of these four doctrines. So you have your imagination can work on this. The picture you want to associate with regeneration is Genesis 1, creation. Because regeneration is actually a new creation. It's the creation of something that didn't happen before, that wasn't there. In one sense, it's ex nihilo, because there was nothing perfect about any of us. In, in another sense, it's really not ex nihilo because it's derived from the risen Lord Jesus Christ and his humanity because he was the one who had the perfect life. And that life is his credentials. And it's that kind of life that is sown as a seed in the human spirit. Now, we don't share his resurrection body yet. We don't share the flesh. We don't, the flesh hasn't been changed. The flesh still is dying. The fact that the death sentence hasn't been removed from us, that we all are going to die one day, one means or another. So, since we're all going to die someday, we must still be under the curse as far as our physical bodies are concerned, right? If we weren't, we wouldn't die. So, whatever regeneration is, it doesn't have to do with the physical, material, human body. Well, what then does it have to do with It has to do with a human spirit. Regeneration is a recreation of the human spirit. And it doesn't mean that you change personality. For example, uh, I was indebted to Arthur Custance for this. You can imagine kind of shapes. Let's say these shapes all represent different emphasis, different gifts naturally. You know, some people are gregarious, some people are more quiet. Some people are very talented in this area. Some people, you know, couldn't carry a tune in a basket. And those are our natural gifts and lack thereof. Well, if these represent different kinds of people, regeneration doesn't change that. What regeneration does, it produces the moral, spiritual qualities of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit that indwells these people and it will be expressed differently in different people. J. 
just as natural human life will be expressed differently in different people. Always with the same submission to the authority of Scripture, the same admonitions in Scripture. But you have to be careful. Just because we are all regenerated at the point of salvation doesn't mean we all have the same personality. John doesn't have the personality of Peter. Anybody knows that reading the Bible. So the guys have different personalities, but they all share eternal life. They all share this quality of life. Now, we want to come to grips with the problem that I surfaced last time on pages 47 and 48. And that is, if you'll turn now to your Bibles to 1 John. We're going to go a little bit more deeply into this today. And that is going to force us to deal with the overall book of John uh, tonight and the structure of this book. If you turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, this is a problem text. Not sure what translation you have, but the translation I have <coughs> takes it upon itself to interpret 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 in the following way. I th what's my translation? I think this one I happen to be using tonight is the new ASV. And some of you have NIV, I think. Um, listen to what the New American Standard Version says. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, the tendency has always been in church history to interpret the verb sin and cannot sin in the present sense in the a continuing present. He cannot continually practice sin. What about the NIV? Anybody have NIV tonight? Uh, oh, yeah. What does the NIV do with, with that first verb of sin in verse 9, Charlie? You know? Does it translate it as continually sin? Yeah. Okay. You hear that? continue to sin. Now, here's the problem with that interpretation. The problem is that if you're going to argue that a present tense in 1 John means continuous sinning, now sometimes the present tense carries a nuance of that. And that's why, obviously, a lot of translators seize upon this. But one of the rules of interpreting the text is you interpret the text's meaning in a series of concentric circles. And the first circle that you use to go out and try to get meaning to, a, to a, something that you're trying to deal with is the immediate context. And if you can't find the meaning in the immediate context, you go out to the end of that document by that author. And if you can't find the meaning of something out in that document, in this case, First John, you go to other John Hyanine text to find out the meaning how John used You don't go to Paul first. You go to John and let John teach you how John uses the words. Well, if you do that, here's the problem. If you say that it's continuous, let's go to 1 John 5, 13.
Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not the one I want. Um, let's go to... Um, okay, 16. First John 5, 16. If you're going to argue that the verb to sin means continually sinning, and the believer does not continually sin in 1 John 3, 9, what do you do in 1 John 5, 16 when it says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, and so forth, uh, God forbid he will sin, not leading to death is sin, and so forth. Uh, do not say you should request for him. There is a sin leading to death. The point I'm making in verse 16 is that the verb to sin is the same one. So now we've got a conflict in John's, John's literature. Because John says in verse 16, if anyone sees his brother continually sinning, then dot, 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 dot. He's talking about a brother here. Clearly the text is talking about another believer. Can't say this person is an unbeliever. Doesn't let that word. Adelphi here. It's the word believer, brother. So now the problem is, by doing a mechanical translation like this, in 1 John 3, 9, we've induced a conflict in 1 John 5, 16. We also would have a problem, if you turn over to 1 John 1, in 1 John 1, 8, It would be, if we say we have no sin continually, we continually have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, which also conflicts with 1 John 3.9. So, because 1 John 3.9 says we don't sin. 1 John 1.8 would then say, and you say you don't sin, you deceive yourself. So, the Word of God can't have conflicts in it. I mean, these people aren't stupid that wrote it. So, what we have to do is back up a minute and say, hmm, maybe I don't really follow John the Apostle's writings carefully here. If I'm getting different vibes out of different parts, i got a problem. So, i got to come around for another pass at this thing and see what's going on. Now, traditionally, First John, uh, the epistle of 1 John is, is, uh, is one where, if you ever read commentaries on this, this book, they all hit Greece, right from page one, because they never outline the book. Commentator after commentator will give you this, something like this. Well, it's not really clear what the details of the argument in 1 John are. It's kind of a loose epistle. Well, I don't think John the Apostle is loose. He's a very profound thinker. Now what has happened is that people read the Gospel of John and fasten on that text, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and so forth. And they come to 1 John and they say the purpose of this epistle, and they turn it over to 1 John 5. And uh, they uh, will take you to verse 13. And say, this is the purpose of this book. This is the purpose. 
These things have I written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. And the way people interpret verse 13, by and large, is these things have written to, those, to you who claim to believe. Maybe your belief is real, maybe it's fake. In order that you may know that you have eternal life, and he gives tests for salvation. In other words, tests for the presence of eternal life. That's what 1 John's all about. Tests for the validity of your faith. Are you really a true, true, true believer? Do you really have eternal life? Well, now, we beg to differ that verse 13 is the purpose of this epistle. Here's why. What do we say? When you see something in the text, don't jump to a hasty conclusion. Check it. You know what one of the greatest tools of Bible study is, besides taking some time to read slowly? Concordance. And you notice in verse 13, it starts out with a phrase, these things I have written. It would be wise to check to see if these things I have written occurs any other time in this epistle before we conclude that verse 13 is the purpose for the whole epistle. Well, once you do that, let's turn back to the first of chapter and let's see how often that expression occurs. Lo and behold, the first time it occurs is right in chapter 1, verse 4. These things we write that our joy may be complete and it's more uh, my, uh, my joy in the best text Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I write these things that you not sin. Chapter 2, verse 26. These things I have written to you. And then, of course, we have chapter 5, verse 13. Well, now, isn't it a little stretch to say that chapter 5, verse 13, gives you the purpose of the whole book? Let's look at these. Chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 26. Now, chapter 2, verse 1. Let's go back to that one. My son, I am writing these things to you that you might not sin. If anyone does sin, so forth, so forth, so forth. Now, what are the things that he wrote to them that they not sin? The previous text talks from chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to the end of chapter 1 is talking about sinning. If you go to chapter 2, verse 26, he says, These things I've written unto you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Now, Where's he just got through doing? Talking about people that deceive, the people who deny the Antichrist, verse 22, verse 23. To make a long story short, because uh, we only have a few minutes, I want to summarize what you would find. Every time you see these phrases in the Johannine text, they are summary statements of what he has just written. They're telling you the purpose of the previous context not the purpose of the whole book. 
They're Johannine signals. They're Johannine expressions for summarizing the points he has just made. These things. These is a reference to some antecedent thing. It's a pronoun. Pronouns have to have what? Antecedent. Now, where are the antecedents? The things he just wrote. These things I have written. Past tense. I'm done writing them now. You've, you've got them all. Verse, 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 verse. These things I've written you. So, right away, we find out that the conclusion that chapter 5, verse 13 expresses the meaning of the book is not quite true. Now let's go to 1 John 1. Something else we have to clarify here. 1 John 1, 1 to 4, is a very interesting structure. And I think if you look in your translations, the end of verse 1 and the end of verse 2 has a dashed line. And translators have correctly noted that verse 2 sticks in the middle of verses 1 and 3, like a sandwich. And that means that you can exclude verse 2 without any loss of meaning in verses 1 to 3. So let's try that. We're going to read verse 1, skip to verse 3. We're going to omit verse 2. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Makes perfectly good sense. Nothing missing grammatically. So what then is verse 2 doing there? Verse 2 is set off as though verse 2 is put in there to answer the questions about the what's. Notice how many what's there are. What was from the beginning, or which, so forth, whatever translation you have. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld. Verse 3, what we have seen and heard we proclaim. Now, what is he talking about? That's the question. What is he talking about? Now, the interesting thing is the what's are neuter, not masculine. So, it's a little hard to say that he has on his mind the person of Jesus himself at this point. If he had, he would have put in who was from the beginning, who we have heard. So, apparently, he's not... Oh, Jesus is on his mind, obviously. Jesus can't be the antecedent of the what's. And furthermore, at the end of verse 1, you'll notice there's a what that's missing. Notice every clause in that section of verse 1 starts with what except the last one. And there's a last, there's a phrase in that, concerning the word of life. Then, as it were, he, he sticks in verse 2 to explain what he means. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and we bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Obviously, we're talking about the incarnation in Jesus. But the question is, is that the what? Well, to make a long story short, if you do an analysis of this, you conclude that it's the message about Jesus rather than Jesus that Paul, that uh, John is talking about. It's the message, concerning the message or the word of life. And what is the message? The message is verse 2. Verse 2 is put in there to explain the content of what he means by the word of life. It's about Jesus, but we would say it's doctrine. 
It's the doctrine that was from the beginning. Now, if you take this to be Jesus, then the tendency is to interpret beginning as referring to creation from the beginning, like Genesis 1, like the Gospel of John begins. But again, what is our rule? Our rule is that we should, when we see something in John, how do you find a meaning of a term? Do you skip to the Gospel first? Or do you check out beginning in a concordance and look in the immediate context first? Immediate context. Turn to chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment you have had from the beginning. Now, what's the meaning of the word beginning in there? From the time they became Christians. This is not the time of the creation of the universe. It's the time that they were Christians. Chapter 2, verse 24. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. What did they hear from the beginning? From the beginning of the time they heard the gospel. So then, and we could go on to chapter 3. In some cases, from the beginning does refer to... uh, primordial history. For example, chapter 3, verse 8, the devil has sinned from the beginning. There, the word beginning does refer to the creation. But in chapter 3, verse 11, right in the immediate context of that, what do we say? This is the message which you have heard from the beginning. Immediate context. So what do we to conclude? Is the word beginning here a technical term that has only one meaning? used for creation of the universe? No. doesn't fit. The word beginning is not being used here as a technical term. It's being used as a term, as a tool word that he's using in whatever context. Sometimes he uses it for creation, primordial history, or other times he uses it from the time they became Christian. So now let's go back and see if we can focus more on the purpose of this book. 1 John 1. That which was from the beginning. Now, if we interpret that meaning, the doctrine of the incarnation which we beheld and our hands have handled, which we have seen and which heard, we proclaim to you. Another interpretive problem here is we and you. Now, there are two ways those those uh, pronouns can be related. One is like this. And the other is like this. The top picture is what we call the inclusive use. That is, we, the whole group, and within that we make a distinction. You. Or, we do it exclusively, that we and you are two different groups. The key in that one is verse 3. What we have seen and what we heard, we proclaim to you, that you may have fellowship with us. Clearly, this is the exclusive use of we and us. Two different groups. The we refers to at least John the Apostle. And the you refer to believers. 
So the epistle is addressed to people who are believers. How do we know that, by the way? Turn to chapter 2. In chapter 2, he says, verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Does that sound like believers or unbelievers? Believers. Verse 13, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him. Believers or unbelievers? And so on, we could go on and on that vein. So now what we have, we have the we and the you defined. The we are the circle of the apostles, or at least John. The you are believers. So now, we come back to 1 John 1. And now we're talking about the purpose of this epistle. Verse 4. Verse 3 and verse 4. Two purposes. Purpose number one, verse three. What we have seen and what we have heard, we proclaim to you. That's the message. That you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. So the question is, what does fellowship mean then? If they're already believers, and He's a believer, the fellowship is not talking about salvation. It's talking about fellowship. It's talking about relationship between believers. Profound statement here. Fellowship really means fellowship. So, the epistle is talking about maintaining this fellowship. The fellowship, then, is the purpose of the book. Everything he's writing in here is to promote fellowship among believers. It's not a test to see whether you're saved or not. These are instructions on how to maintain fellowship. Then in verse 4, he gives us another purpose. These we write that... Now, here you have to watch the text. The best textual manuscripts... This gets into a textual criticism problem. Let me just summarize it this way. There are two schools of thought in Christianity about textual criticism. One school of thought says... The best texts are the oldest text. That is, I found a manuscript in the Vatican in 300 A.D., dates from 3 to 400 A.D., and all my other manuscripts are late Greek manuscripts up here, 1,900. So this guy, he's earlier, he's a better manuscript. That's what we call it, the critical text. So you can go into a bookstore and you buy a Greek text, and it'll be the critical text, meaning that the textual apparatus emphasizes the early manuscripts. There's another school, however, that argue that it's not the early manuscripts, it's the majority of the manuscripts. That the reason these early manuscripts are found in the libraries is because they were never used. They were set aside and they didn't deteriorate. The papyri stayed in the library because people did not prefer that manuscript. So the precise reason they were found is because they weren't used. They're scraps. They're discarded manuscripts. And the continuity then of the Holy Spirit is that the text really hasn't changed that much. If you hold to the critical approach, then you're going to have to say, gee, after 19 centuries, the Holy Spirit didn't do too good a job. Tischendorf and a few other guys found some old texts, and now we really know what the text says. 
like we didn't know before. Well, now, the majority text in verse 4 says, so that our joy, not, is not your joy, so that our joy may be complete. Now, some of you may have that in your translations. It, it, it varies from translations. So, he's, it's our joy, meaning that it's the apostle's joy. He, has, he enjoys it when his children, that is, believers, have fellowship. There is a joy there. Well, why are we stressing all this? Because once we know that it was written to believers, once we know the purpose for this book, that it's written to promote fellowship, now we come back to that, that we, we go through some of the problems. We, for example, look at 1 John 1, and we say verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice. Notice he's talking about himself. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. We can be out of fellowship. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. The truth is not in us. Notice it is possible the truth not to be in a believer. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not referring to salvation, it's referring to an adjustment that we make when the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin in our conscience. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John's fond of using this in business. Verse two, 1 of chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, see, he's not talking about sinless perfection. He's trying to minimize sin in the congregation by teaching them these truths. He says, I hope you don't sin, but if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now come over to chapter 3, verse 9. immediate context of that troublesome verse 9. Let's go back up a few verses. Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who is, who is righteous, I got practice righteous, is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who has sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides him. He cannot sin because he's born of God. Look further back up in verse 5 and 6, just before he got talking about the sinning and those who don't. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him, in who? In him, there is no sin. There's the context. In him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. John is antithetical. And these are his words for one who is in fellowship or one who is out of fellowship. Abiding in him is walking in the light. It's having fellowship with him. 
No one who abides in him sins. So what does that teach? That teaches when we sin, we get out of fellowship. When we confess our sins, his faith just to cleanse us and put us back in fellowship. So now we have a little tool that John the Apostle gives us to promote fellowship. It's the issue of personal sin. And you'll notice it's not blaming circumstances. It's not blaming what somebody else did. It's taking personal responsibility and bringing it before the Lord. So we have a tool here. And then furthermore, now we can say, no one who is born of God practices sin. No one sins. He's saying nothing more in verse 9 than he was saying in verse 7. Than he was saying in verse 6. You have to get used to the way this man expresses himself and not confuse his vocabulary with Paul's. However, this is a distinction, this business of whatever this, who, who, who abiding in Christ when the eternal life has its dominion. Notice that Paul does much the same thing. And I'm going to take you to two verses in conclusion tonight so you can see that this idea, though expressed in a different vocabulary, is not unique to the Apostle John. There are troublesome verses like verse 9 in Paul. So, let's turn over to Galatians chapter 2. Look carefully at this text. If 1 John 3.9 is a problem, then Galatians 2.20 is also a problem. And you know that if we have a problem, it must be we're misunderstanding these guys in their vocabulary. And it demands our attention. What does he say in Galatians 2.20? He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. See, doesn't that sound a little bit like John? I'm not living now. What do you mean, Paul, you're not living now? Give me a break. No, it's not me that lives. Huh? You're not living now? No, he says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith the Son of God. So he's saying, at the halfway through verse 20, notice this. There's an ambiguity here. He says, I now live. See where he says that? There's the verb to live, correct? What's the subject of the verb? Christ or Paul? Paul. I now live. But then the first part says, but I don't any longer live. Christ lives in me. Well, if you've got a problem with 1 John 3, 9, you're going to have a problem with Galatians 2, 20. And it means you have to really, this is not easy stuff. I'm not making light of this, folks. All I'm doing is pointing out the fact that you can't come 60 miles an hour and read the Word of God. You've got to think about these things. This is not easy stuff. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, finally, let's turn in conclusion to Romans 7. Romans chapter 7. Verse 20. Romans chapter 7, verse 20. If I am doing the thing that I do not wish, I am no longer the one who does it. 
Now, that doesn't sound like a cop-out. See? But it's in the text. That's the Holy Spirit's text. It is no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells in me. We're going to have to come to more as this as we unfold the pattern of the New Testament truth. We're going to, however we do it, we have to satisfy the constraints of these verses. And this is why this is not an easy subject. And this is why somebody with two and a half minutes exposure to any message on this and draws the conclusion that somebody is teaching sinless perfection hasn't listened too carefully. Because sinless profession is not being taught by Paul and is not being taught by the Apostle John. But something else is being taught by these guys, that there is a regenerate nature, that somehow this regenerate nature shares the impeccability of its source, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And how you marry those two together is because our souls are a lot more complicated now after regeneration than we thought. Our model of our insides, our model of who we are as people, is challenged by these texts. That maybe we have too trivial, too simplified model of what we really are about here. That the Holy Spirit is challenging us to say, you're a lot more complicated now that you've been regenerated than you thought you were. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that you lead us to greater and greater knowledge of who you are. And you bring conviction of sin into our lives that we may have fellowship with you. And we may deal with those things that you raise to our attention. We thank you that you are gracious to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, ten minutes or so. Uh, just want to give a chance for Q&A for anybody that wants to uh, raise questions. So, Mike. Yeah, it, it, it's um, the, the present tense doesn't have to always be continuous action. It can refer to a principle. Um, throw a rock up and it falls down. That would be translated in the Greek as present tense. Because I'm giving you what was we call a gnomic. Uh, it's a principle. It's a rule. It's just... It's a general thing. When it happens, it doesn't mean the rock's always falling down. It means when I throw it up, it falls down as a rule. That's always there. And if you can think of it as a principle, then what John is simply saying is that he who is born of God has his seed in him. You see that word seed is a key. Has his seed in him. Every time you see the preposition I-N in John, you've got to stop. Because this guy... He loads that preposition. It's very difficult. John's deceptive because John's epistle looks like it's so easy to understand. In one sense it is. It's light and darkness. It's water, thirsty and not thirsty. It's uh, light and darkness. um, Sin and righteousness. 
If you look at John, he always writes in a polarity. There's always a bifurcation there. And why it, it, it throws you sometimes is because the great either or is salvation or not salvation. So the minute we see uh, a contrast, we're immediately, uh, we get this category that sets in, and the crank turns up here, and uh, so we think salvation or not. And the problem is that when you do that, you lose some Johannine subtleties. Because this guy, I don't think he could approach a meal without uh, an either-or. And that's his style. And you have to read enough of John to feel that style. And this is not a class in Johannine exegesis, but the place where he apparently, if you ask yourself biographically, it's always good to know the biographies of these guys and how they got started. I believe that where this duality got started was with the Lord Jesus himself, and I believe one of the keys was the upper room discourse. Because you remember that discourse was John was very close to Jesus, so close that he was Judas Iscariot, you know. They were debating about who was closest. John was very much enraptured with the person of Jesus. And what was the theme in John 14, 15, and 16? Before Jesus went to the cross, he basically briefed the disciples. And in the middle of that briefing, he brought up the vine and the branches. And he talked about abiding in him versus not abiding in him. And that passage has to be interpreted the same way we're doing 1 John 3. And that is that you either abide or you don't abide. Now, because there's a bifurcation there, people tend to go into John 15 and say, oh, the, the branches are saved, and the unsaved branches, they're burned. Well, it's not quite as simple as that. The abiding is a state. That word meno, that verb meno, is used in 1 John. In fact, the idea of meno, though not the verb, is right up in the context of verse 6. That I showed you tonight where it says, he who is in him, in him is no sin. The idea there is that John seems to have this picture. Uh, I've always pictured it from 1 John 1 more than 1 John 3. I always view it as uh, walking out on a stage that's dark, and there's a spotlight shining down the stage, and there's this big illuminated spot. And... It's like the, 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 the light spot is moving, which would be what the Lord wants to do in your life. And the, the light may be moving, but you've got to stay walking in it. And you're either in the light or you're not. So, when John's vocabulary, if you abide in him, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. Now, even that statement is an extreme statement. Think about it. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, hello? Is that perfection? Surely not. And yet it's something almost like perfection. So the question is, how do you take this strong, perfective vocabulary of John and make sense of it when the guy's still talking about sinning? So the way to think about it is through the vine and the branch imagery who abides in him. The difference there between a real vine and, and the image is that branches don't choose to abide. 
And yet, abide is an imperative mood. Abide in me, that you may have life. Now, that's where the metaphor doesn't fully follow. But abide there, I believe, that sets up this fellowship metaphor. And it carries through the rest of John. Uh, This is why uh, John is quite a challenge if you've been brought up to think in classic Reformed theology categories because his evaluation of what we'll call salvation but out of fellowship, sort of carnality, is not too flattering. He uh, argues in 1 John 5 that there's a sin unto death believers can commit. Uh, he argues that branches can be burned. He argues these kind of things that have, uh, if you go to Armenian theologians, they will say, see, John's teaching loss of salvation. But we would say John is teaching a very sobering view of chastening. That the idea of the Reformed, classic Reformed theology views the Christian life as sort of guaranteed not only guaranteed in that you stay saved, that that we all know, but they have another view that's embedded in that one, and that is everything's going to come out all right. You're eventually going to get all your rewards. Whereas that's not apparently true when you look at Paul and John carefully. Christians can make wreckage of their lives and go into the kingdom uh, bare and naked. That's the burning 1 Corinthians 3, you know, wood, hay, and stubble, and, and gold. The sobering thing is that Christians can lose, a, lose rewards, uh, can have phony human works burned up. Not a pleasant scene. So there's a degree of unpleasantness that she's sharply a function and a consequence of abiding or not abiding of walking in the light or not walking in the light. Uh, as I say, the Arminians will interpret that as loss of salvation. The Calvinists try to interpret it as, well, they were never saved to start with. And I think there's a, another way of handling that that doesn't get you in that trouble. And that is to see that John goes back to the upper room discourse. He picks up this theme of abiding and you're either abiding or you're not abiding. And then he's He's giving us the instructions in 1 John how to make sure you're abiding by confessing our sins. When the Holy Spirit convicts you, respond to it. You could say it's repentance. I don't, you know, the heck with a label. Point is, there's an adjustment there. And if this adjustment's not made, then fruit has not happened. So, so you you go back then to these passages, like I pointed out in Paul. Um, these guys have a view of this business of fellowship that I think is very powerful and I don't think historically the Reformation did great jobs soteriologically but just as the Reformation never really developed eschatology for example I don't believe that Reformed theology has really delved into the depths of this abiding when Dr. Chafer, founder of Dallas Seminary, wrote a book in 1911 called He That Is Spiritual, when he was the one that developed quite a bit of this out of the 19th century revivals. When he wrote that book, you know what his most vehement critic was? B.B. Warfield. 
You know what Warfield's criticism of Dr. Chafer's book was? Because Dr. Chafer said that uh, you can confess your sin, you respond. Well, that's, that's human free will. Dr. Chafer has allowed human free will in there. Why, that's, you mean there's a choice? And Dr. I'll never forget reading Dr. Chafer's reply to Warfield was, when you preach the gospel, do you give people a choice? Of course you do. Well, then why do you cut the choice out when it comes to the moment-by-moment moment living in the Christian life? Right? It's hard. And I hesitate to get in too deeply into this because, like I said, this is not a class in exegesis. It's a framework where we go over these large areas of theology. But I do want it enough to point out to you tonight. The real thing to take away tonight is that when you come to a book of Scripture... You've got to interpret it in a local context and fan out from there. If you don't get out, go out further. And you can have doctrinal checks. So if you're coming to a conclusion over here, like I did tonight with 1 John 3, you say, well, wait a minute. Um, am I inventing doctrine here? Or is this really here? If I have been misled, if I have wrong conclusion in the text, one of the checks then is, after you've concluded from the text, you look around the rest of the scripture to see if there are any checkpoints. And that's what we did. Because Paul does the same thing. Except Paul's vocabulary doesn't use abide. He's not talking about abide in Christ or not. He has other terms for that. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, those are two imperatives. Now, you can't have an imperative verb without what? A binary response. Every imperative verb requires you either obey it or you disobey it. So there's an either-or. Every imperative demands an either-or. And Paul's either-or verbs of exhortation are slightly different from that meno of John. Abide in the vine, walk in the light. Teenager, young, older teens or young twenties, because the only inference of the age of John is that he outlived every other disciple. And he, if he was circulating around at ninety on the island of Patmos, and Jesus was thirty A.D., that's sixty years from the time that he saw Jesus. Well, if he's sixty years from the time he saw Jesus, how old was he? He must have been seventies or eighties. So even if he were 70 or 80, it puts him in his late teens or early 20s. That is one reason why people who are conservatives, those of us who believe in an inerrant Bible and that the Bible is not some big redaction out of the church, that's how we explain the obvious uh, uniqueness to John's expressions. John expresses himself a lot differently than Luke, Mark, and Matthew. And liberals have seized on that for years, saying, ah, see, that was just written after the fact. Precisely the opposite. John's Gospel was written later, after the other Gospels. But the style of the Gospel seems to show that, as a young man, he was deeply influenced by Jesus' words. Because even Matthew and Mark record uh, that, that passage where Jesus is talking and he says... Um, uh, Father, I thank you that these things you have uh, kept uh, from people and have revealed them to the children. And he, he uses light and darkness in that kind of vocabulary. So some think, and I tend to agree with them, 
that what we have in John is actually the way Jesus expressed himself on a lot of occasions. Yeah, yeah. you can't tell who's speaking, but you know what the passage is to try that? Here's an exercise for you to try. Take a piece of paper and read. start reading with John chapter 3, verse 1. Go down through chapter 3. By the time you get to verse 36, it's John writing. Verse 1 is Jesus speaking. Now you tell me where, they, where it stops and where it starts. Just try it. It's a neat exercise. And you'll see what I mean. It's, all, it's almost impossible to tell where Jesus stops and John starts. Just, these are the quirky little things of the human beings that wrote this. Amazing guys. These, you know, when you stop and think, here we are tackling these verses after 1,900 years of the church chewing this stuff over. And we're sitting here still scratching our heads. And those guys were fishermen, businessmen. Apostles, and they grasped all this. Of course, they were there, and they had the perfect teacher. But after, if you read your church history, and you read Clement, and you read Justin Martyr, you read these guys right after that lived right after. You can go to the, you know, library and pull off these books written by the second and third generation. You just take the Gospel of John, and take uh, or Paul's letter, and take the letter of Clement to Rome. Put Romans and First Clement together and read them. And don't, th- don't see if you don't come away with the fact that Clement's trying to use the words and he doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, he, he's a godly man. He's a Christian. But he's lost something. That power that comes from Paul. It's just kind of... The guys try to mouth the words, but it's coming through kind of... like this. They lost it after the first century and we've been 19 centuries because I think the church is being matured and we've gone through a lot of theological debate the apostles never had to defend the deity of Jesus like the church had to in the second and third century the apostles never had to identify the means of salvation like the church had to in 1500s and the apostles probably never had to defend their eschatology like we're having to today so we're working through these things. Probably won't get to the end until all of a sudden, bing, end, end of the game. Oh yeah, well gee, we, you know, if we had a few more centuries, we could have dug into this, Lord. It's all right, you've got eternity.
you know. Wow, that's the whole that's the whole other part of Johann John's writings. Um, it's interesting though, isn't it, that which apostle was selected by the Holy Spirit to be transported to heaven and see the vision of all history. So I must say something about this guy John. You know. Okay, well, I haven't answered all the all I know I haven't answered all your questions, but I, it's just a challenge to Look at these texts and think about it because you've got to come to a conclusion for, on those verses like verse 9 in, in Galatians 2.20. And you cannot say it's sinless perfection, but you have to say there's some mighty strong language being used there about being in Christ. Okay.